Mm -hmm. You were showing those results previously. Mm -hmm. um, so you're doing detection of these objects, the faces, for example, in the natural scene. You're doing detection, matching across pose and lighting and so forth, all of the V1 model, or is this now with three layers and some uh, variance? Like, what, yes. what are you so, 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 so we're doing, uh, doing a, so it's standard sort of face recognition. We have two, in this case, we have two individuals. Uh, and we have to tell which one of the two individuals is in the image. Um, these first bars and all these graphs are the V1-like model. So the V1-like model, we know, performs poorly on these tasks because they have lots of variation in them. But this isn't same, not same. This is like you have a training set per category? Uh, yeah, this, so this is, yeah, this is, you have, um, yeah, we can do it both ways, and we know it works both ways. So you could do same, not same, uh, and that's how the, the faces, labeled faces in the wild set works that way naturally. That's the way it works. Um, this is kind of standard sort of face A, face B. So it'd be like saying, you know, is the, is the face in this scene me or is it Hans-Peter? Uh, and, and the classifier would have to say, you know, me when it saw me and have to say Hans-Peter when it saw Hans-Peter. Um, so chance here is 50%. And then you see that actually the state-of-the-art models, when confronted with uh, one of these tasks that actually has quite a bit of variation, are, are all kind of hugging close to 50%. So it's a, it's a hard problem, and it's a problem that as a field we really haven't solved. But if you turn around and look at how these same models perform, or variants on these same models perform on standard face recognition test sets, you'd have the idea that you know, we're at 90% or 80%, and you'd have the idea that we'd solve these problems, but uh, it's just not the case. Uh, and the nice thing about having this huge amount of power is it lets us find these, these really, really um, effective models even in spite of these problems. Does that answer your question? Okay. Okay, so, um, so the data I, I just showed you was from uh, you know, models that were trained using uh, watching Law and Order. We could do the same thing with other, we did the same thing with other worlds of video. So we had these kind of rendered boats tumbling through space. We had rendered cars and planes tumbling through space as the video inputs. And it turns out basically that it almost doesn't matter what video inputs we use. Um, we kind of arrive at similar solutions uh, to these problems. Uh, so again, here's the distribution of performance. And we're going to skim off the very, very creme de la creme and then come over here. And then here are the performances across a variety of different, uh, of the top five models across a variety of different challenge tasks. And you can see that they're all solidly uh, beating the V1 model and then you know, also beating the state-of-the-art models. So this seems like a robust strategy for finding models that are, that are interesting. And it, basically, if, if you uh, look at the performance of, on the screening task versus the performance on a variety of other validation tasks, you find this good correlation. So this is uh, how well each model performed on the, on the cars and planes screening task and then on different validation tasks. So you can see that basically if you did well on this one task, you tend to do well on other tasks, which is important for this approach to be able to work. Uh, in general, if you just take the average across all of our, all of our um, validation tasks, you find that that correlates pretty well with the, the cars and planes uh, screening tasks. So what we need to do is we need to find a, a quick way to screen through this huge diversity of models so we can find the good ones. And then luckily, the models that are screened that way tend to perform well on a, a large variety of tasks. And then, um, so then that puts us in an interesting situation because now we have these models which are very good and in some cases, you know, better than anything anyone else has. Yeah. So can I just ask, mm -hmm. is it also possible that maybe biology actually has all these different models simultaneously so that you would do even better if you had a blend mm -hmm. of specialized models? Uh, sure, yeah. So, um, 
yeah, it, it's, it's certainly, so that, that was sort of the spirit of, of, of doing the blends earlier, sure, that we can blend together. Different categories. Yeah, so we could have you could imagine taking this in all kinds of directions, where you could you could train uh, find models that are good for X, find models that are good for Y, find models that are good for Z, blend them together, or you know con you know switch between which one you want to use in a context dependent way. Um, you know, really the sky's the limit in terms of of being able to take these models and combine them in different ways. Um, and I mean, do, do, does biology know what the brain does? I mean, is there any evidence that we do one or the other? Uh, there's very little evidence yeah. about anything. So this is one of the reasons why I run a physiology lab, is I'm trying to go look at the biology and see if I can find answers in there so that then we can maybe have some sort of uh, guidance here. But at the same time, you know, if we can build a model that can do x versus y, then we can build a model that can do z versus w. Um, it's really easy then to think about all the different ways you can combine those or try and build one that can do all four or you know, rely on this one in this context, rely on that one in that context. Um, the main thing is that we're you know, even in the game and we even have models to entertain that have any sort of traction on these problems. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that, that this gives us. So we, we have some idea that this, that this uh, screening and validation basically works. Um, but you know, now we're in a situation where we, we have models that are the best on all of these tasks, but we don't actually even know how they work. Um, so we're, we're kind of back in the mode of, of now trying to understand our own models. Um, and and this, this gives you some idea of the kind of tea leaf reading that, that we're engaged in now. So here, uh, for two different parameter values, so now we have, this is a particular uh, pre-processing parameter in the very first stage. Um, and under uh, each of these different parameter values, this is a distribution, so basically over-plotted um, the distribution of uh, performances from models that had false values and had true values for this particular parameter. And then the ones up here in red are actually the top five. So you can get a, this also gives you a little bit of a sense of just how much better those top five are than all the others. And you know, the other thing to bear in mind too is you know, these are about one in 500 of these. So if, if we even you know, search 50 models, we aren't gonna find these models. These are, these are really, really rare models. But we can start to look at how their parameters are set up and say, well, is there any consistent pattern where all of the best models all have this one particular parameter set in a particular way? And you know, this isn't conclusive, but it's suggestive maybe that you know, false for this particular parameter is the right answer because all of the, the kind of emergently great models all have the same value. Whereas for this other particular uh, linear filtering parameter in, in the first layer, um, you know, the, the, the best models seem to be evenly distributed across a range of parameter values. And then same idea for, for some other parameters. This one, perhaps, you know, perhaps higher values for this particular parameter are better, and then perhaps lower values for this other parameter are better. Um, the, thing, the critical thing is now that we have the ability not just to, to run, crank one model and then, and then say, done, here's our, our results, now we actually have the power to go and run systematic experiments where we can actually you know, run you know, a thousand models with this value and with that value and that value with all the other parameters held constant and start to ask questions about how these parameters are interacting with each other, uh, which ones are important for performance, which ones aren't important for performance. And we have kind of a new laboratory uh, to be able to ask questions about these, these, high, these, um, these biologically inspired models that really wouldn't be possible unless, it was, unless we could run large, large numbers of models uh, in a short amount of time. Yep. It looks a lot like running some kind of genetic algorithm, mm -hmm. and I wonder, do you have some way of recombining results that are well-performing to do a 
more guided search through the space of two to the 50th combinations? Mm -hmm. Yep, so we're, we're running genetic algorithm searches now. So this, this is sort of like the first round of, of a first generation of, of a GA search. So um, we don't have much in the way of um, recombination right now, but we do have you know, biasing of the search. So you can go and you can say, well, you know, these ones were successful, so they're going to survive to the next round, and we're going to get mutations of those guys and some new guys thrown in and, and try and get a better search. Because you're right, it, it's too big of a space to be searching. Even, if you're, even being able to search 100,000 or a million models still is, is not a large number in the face of you know, 2 to the 52 or more combinations. So we really are starting to now try and think about, you know, how can we use either simulated annealing or particle swarm or, or genetic algorithms to try and bias that search. Um, on one hand, though, you know, 1 in 500, so 1 in 500 of these models is good, and that's a, that's a daunting number. But on the other hand, it's actually not so bad. It could have been worse, right? It could have been 1 in 50,000, and we would have never found the really good models. So good models aren't completely uncommon. Uh, so the, we, we kind of have a little bit of traction, some hope that you know, the, the parameter space might be a little bit smooth. And once you have a smooth parameter space, then you can think about climbing hills and, and, and things like that. Um, and we don't have a good sense yet, um, you know, how peaky that, that performance space is. Um, but we do know that we can find good models, and we can now bias the search for, for, for better models using that first round. So just to, to summarize, um, so basically, you know, GPUs have given us a, you know, a way to do experiments that just would have been, would have been silly to even consider uh, before we had them. Uh, we, can, we can run large-scale experiments. We can try lots of different parameters. Um, we, can, we can really guide our progress a lot faster. It's, it's, it's one of those cases where something quantitative actually becomes a qualitative uh, difference because it's so big. And, um, and then that, that really has changed the way we do our experiments. And, uh, and that's, that's really the, the, the hope here is that we can now move much more swiftly and find new things and hopefully be building better, both a better understanding of the natural systems and also be building really great uh, vision systems for, for actual practical purposes. So with that, uh, I'm just going to close. Uh, I always include a shameless recruitment slide uh, at the end of all my talks. So if you're interested in any of this stuff or you're looking for final project uh, projects, um, certainly check us out. Uh, and then... Uh, we're over at the Roland Institute, which is actually uh, closer to MIT than it is to Harvard. But uh, this is, again, just a shameless plug slide. We have quite, quite a few uh, uh, GPUs, thanks to NVIDIA, uh, that, that, that we would love to have more people come and play with. And then finally, just to acknowledge uh, the people in my lab. Uh, these people are primarily involved in physiology, but uh, they play an important role in, in, in the lab's overall effort. And then in particular, uh, collaborators at MIT uh, particularly Nicola Pinto, who's, who's here, uh, whose who's PhD work this is, uh, is right now, and then his advisor, Jim DiCarlo, who also contributes, and then NVIDIA for quite a bit of hardware support, and the Roland Institute at Harvard for, for supporting me. And then I'd like to thank you all for your, uh, for your attention. So with that, I'll close. Yep. talked a little bit about sort of figuring out why different models work better, being able to look at different parameters and see which models use what parameters. Has anyone tried to go like, deeper than that and, and try and figure out sort of some higher level lessons from this brute force search about 
you know, what it's, what it's finding about how you should design a vision algorithm? Yeah, I mean, certainly that we're, we're trying to do that. So, I mean, you asked if any, has anyone done that? It's, it's really just us <laughs> at this stage that are, that are doing this at all. So, um, but, you know, we can start, you know, so neuroscience does give some guidance. So, you know, there's some idea that, you know, sparseness of representation is important. So you want to have relatively small numbers of units representing as, as much as possible, and you have a sparse overcomplete representation. We can now go and say, okay, well, there's computational reasons to believe that this is important. Do we find these things, these kind of high-level properties, we find that they correlate with good performance or not? And that's, that's something we've started to, to do, where, you know, we're looking for, we are looking for a kind of high-level motivated computational things that, that we can see in the results of these high-throughput searches. Um, again, though, you know, you can't, it, without, the, without models that do well, you're kind of, it's kind of hard to come up with figuring out whether a computational idea is important because you, you haven't demonstrated that it works at all. So now we're at the stage of we can demonstrate that some of these models work at least better than other models, and now we can ask, okay, well, what, what about these? You know, on one hand, you can do kind of low-level parameter tea-leaf reading, but on the other hand, certainly you can do uh, a much more uh, motivated analysis of computational principles, and that's certainly something that we're we're trying hard to do. So I do hope that a few of you will do some computer vision and maybe biologically inspired computer vision uh, projects for the final project. I think it's a very very exciting area. We certainly would love to have some help. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if other people have questions, there's a question from Skype about the exam. Sure. So let's just uh, thank David again. Okay. Just turn this on. Okay. All right. Uh, wanted to know about uh, openness, like notes online. What yeah. So fair game. Why don't? Yeah. So the questions will be of the, you know, compare A to B or uh, Y is X. You know, more of the understanding type, not already right. what is a line right. So I actually forgot to mention at the beginning, um, I would like to have lecture on Monday, even though it hasn't been on the schedule. I'll add it to the schedule. Would all of you be able to come on Monday? Okay, because I'd like to actually walk through the final project proposals, which by then you have all completed. And, you know, maybe each one of you can briefly explain what they're trying to do and Maybe we've also uh, been able to send you some feedback before that. But I think it'd be nice if everybody knows kind of what is the range of projects that people are working on and, you know, sort of get a sense of who is working on what. So it, it will be more of an informal lecture get-together where we just look at the project proposals. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, I'll see you all on Monday. Uh, same place, same, same time. Yeah. Um, the schedule for the next two weeks has Project Lab. Right, yes. Thank you for asking. Um, so the idea originally was that these would be opportunities for office hours. So essentially that if you have, you know, particular questions where you want to meet with the TF, you can schedule it during those times. And, you know, the idea again was that maybe it'd be better to do that at 53 Church in the lab, actually, when you have a, a PC in front of you. But knowing that you all have laptops, maybe that's not so required. And, you know, 
so that that was the idea. There is no actual lab. I mean, it's 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 more like office hours. It's only by demand. You know, the TF will not be sitting around in the lab and waiting for you guys. So you actually have to schedule if you want to meet with the TF. Yeah. Um, how, what what's the expectation for uh, a distance learning students for the project proposal discussion on Monday? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, of course, if you can be online, that'd be fantastic. Um, Let's see, if, if they're on Skype, you could even potentially hook it up onto the audio, right? Yeah. Okay, can we do that? Yeah, so I, I actually I can just bring my laptop, hook up Skype, and you know, if you're on Skype and you have a, please make sure you have a microphone, but most laptops do, so, so then we should just be able to pipe you into the audio. And of course, you know, if you're not online, sorry, but um, that's best we can do. Yeah, I mean, for those of, of you who are not here on Monday, we'll just basically, you know, pre briefly present um, the project proposal to the class ourselves. So. Question? No? Okay, great. Thanks again. See you next week.